Well, hey, Grace Church, it's great to be with you today. It's great to be able to gather together, even though we're still somewhat scattered. Uh, and if you haven't been to one of our outdoor services, I just would personally invite you to try that out uh, 1045 on Sundays, whenever the weather permits. Okay, so for the first two years of my, I would call it illustrious college career, I was present at the University of Northern Iowa. Now I say present because attended is just too strong of a word. I was there physically, yes, but I was definitely not engaged or, or really participating, at least to any respectable degree, because I was just, I was too busy having fun to take school seriously at that moment in my life. It, it wasn't that I was incapable, it was because I just simply decided I didn't need to take it seriously. And so I remember getting my grades at the end of my second year and I, I clocked in a solid 1.67 GPA. That actually really did get my attention because I thought to myself, what in the world am I doing? And then a miracle happened. I met the woman who would eventually become my wife working that summer at, of all places, Valley Fair. That, that's a whole different story. But after I met Tammy, there was no way I was going back to the University of Northern Iowa. And so somehow, Hamlin accepted me even with my poor academic track record. I knew I had blown it in the past, but at that point I, I committed myself to taking my education more seriously from, that, from then on. And I did, and I graduated with honors and blah, 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 blah. Came back up when I applied for graduate school, but that's another story as well. But that is my story. So what's yours? What's a, what's a time or an event in your life where you just weren't taking things seriously for one reason or another? What, what's a time when you found yourself just sort of, you know, going through the motions, but, but not really truly engaging or participating. And maybe it's because you just didn't understand, or, or maybe you didn't see the value or, or something like that. But the truth is we all do this at one point or another. And because of it, we're all then bound, at least at some point, to miss some things along the way. Well, communion or the Lord's Supper can often be one of those things. If you grew up in church, you've most likely had communion many times, maybe even hundreds of times. But that doesn't automatically mean that you understood or now even understand what it was, what it is, or why it's happening. And if you're new to church, the whole process may seem very, very strange and, and actually intimidating. And so the result is that oftentimes we can find ourselves just sort of going through the motions, not really taking it seriously for, for all different reasons. Maybe we don't understand it. Uh, maybe it just seems too strange or too foolish. Maybe it just seems like it's totally unnecessary and, and, and just a waste of time. But here's the thing. Communion is one of the four core components that we're exploring in this Back to the Future series. We're looking at, at what was and what is still vital in the church. So it's not optional. It's essential. Remember, Acts 2.42 says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which 
has a purpose, it's communion, and to prayer. And so communion was a non-negotiable in the early church, and it still fits to this day that that's true. But that doesn't automatically guarantee that it's meaningful to us or that we even understand it. And so if we don't know why we should take it seriously or don't know why or where it came from, then we can easily just end up sort of participating without any real sense of why it's important or why we should care. So my hope today is that we can learn or perhaps remember, maybe we haven't thought about it in a long time, but that we can learn together why this is such a special opportunity for the followers of Jesus. He invites us to this. But before we get started, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you call us to your table, that you invite us to follow you. We just ask now that you send your Holy Spirit to reveal truth in our hearts that we might have missed out on before because maybe we just didn't understand or maybe we just weren't taking it seriously. We turn to you now, Lord, and we ask you to be our leader and our guide. We ask that, uh, that we might be changed forevermore just as a result of you teaching us through your Holy Spirit more about what it means to be in fellowship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when it comes to communion, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have fairly similar accounts of this meal that Jesus had with, with his disciples. The Gospel of John also talks about it, but he does it in a very, very different way. And then in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, Paul talks about communion because he's addressing issues that the early church was having with what he calls the Lord's Supper. And so that's where we get the name, the Lord's Supper. So whether or not we call it communion or the Lord's Supper, we're talking about the same thing. And it's a reference to what Jesus began at this final meal that he had with his disciples on the very night that he would later be arrested and then crucified the following day. And so in order for us to get some firm foundation here, we're going to be looking at the Last Supper or the First uh, Communion as recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking at Luke, Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20. And I'm just going to read it first and make some, a few comments along the way. And then we're going to look more specifically at some of the key aspects of what's really going on here. So Luke 22, starting at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. Now, this is interesting because reclining at the table meant that they had to set themselves up for a long meal. They would actually lay down with their feet away from the table because this was a long time. They were in this meal for a long time. And then Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, it's important for us to realize that that none of this is happening in isolation. There's much more going on here than than what it might, might look like or what we might think. And the first big clue we have that that's true is that all of this is happening or taking place during Passover. And now, if you don't know, Passover is the most important celebratory event for the Jewish people. And it's something that happens every single year. It still happens with Jewish people who do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, by the way. It still happens now. You can read all about the origins of all this in detail, starting at the, well, the, at least the first part of the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. But in a nutshell, the Israelites had been held as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God intervened by calling his servant Moses to be his instrument who would finally set the people free. So God sent Moses to Pharaoh in Egypt over and over and over again. Many of you know this story, but he sent them each time Moses would ask Pharaoh to let my people go. And each time the answer was ultimately no. And so then God started sending a series of plagues against Egypt, each, each one with increasing intensity and misery, and each one in response to every no from Pharaoh. And so finally, the last plague was enough. Because God told Moses he was going to send the angel of death to kill all of the firstborn sons in Egypt. From people to animals, all of the firstborn, with the exception of those who followed these steps. God gave these steps to Moses. He said, the whole community of Israel is to choose and then slaughter a perfect, blemish-free, one-year-old lamb or a goat. One for each household. If there's not enough to go around, you have to share. But one for each household. And then they were to take some of the blood from the lamb and smear it on the sides and the tops of the door frames in each of their homes. The blood of the lamb, God said, will be a sign to me of where you are. And I will spare the houses where I see the blood. In other words, the the angel of death came and passed over the houses with blood on the door frames. That's where the name Passover comes from. The blood of the lambs served as a way to spare the lives of Israel's firstborn sons. But Egypt's firstborn sons were not so fortunate. And so when all this happened, and when all the firstborns were killed, Pharaoh finally said, enough, get out. And God told the Israelites that they had to grab their stuff in a hurry and go at once. They didn't even have time to wait for their bread to rise. So they just baked it without yeast because they didn't have time to wait for it. And they just grabbed it to go. And God commanded that from now on, they were to celebrate and to remember this each year with the Passover meal, with the lamb, and also with the festival of unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast. And that this would remind them for 
generations and generations that God had done this amazing thing for them, set them free, passed over them, spared them. So the fact that this supper with Jesus and his disciples is taking place during Passover is not a coincidence and it's not by mistake. Something is about to change in a major, major way. And so this is the backdrop for what Jesus says and does in verses 19 and 20. When he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so he's saying that from now on, this bread should be thought of as my body and this wine or this juice should be thought of as my blood. And this is astounding because what he is really saying is that he is about to fulfill the promises of the Passover in a completely new and different way. He's bringing the old covenant to an end and he's ushering in the new covenant through his own blood. In other words, Jesus alone, he alone is going to become the perfect and the final Passover lamb. There, there won't be any more after that. There will be no need for, for future sacrificial lambs because Jesus will get the job done once and for all. His body will be given over and his blood will be shed so that all who trust in him will not face the finality of death, but instead will be raised again and be freed to live in fellowship with him forever. And this is what Jesus wants so eagerly to tell his disciples in this meal. He, he wants them to remember him and trust him. So it's the significance here is, is not just the meal by itself. It's not just the actions of, of eating and drinking. It's because Jesus knows that after all that's about to happen happens, these disciples are going to need something to hold on to. Something to remind themselves that, well, this, this did happen, right? We didn't just dream this up. This happened. And so just as the Passover, the Passover had been the reminder of how God rescued the people from Egypt, and all of these disciples were, were participants in this yearly festival to remember that, the Lord's Supper was given to remember the new thing that God was about to accomplish and now has accomplished through Jesus. And this is a whole new kind of freedom a whole new kind of exodus. And so when you consider this, just imagine for a minute, what, what must it have been like for these disciples the first time that they gathered and ate the bread and drank the cup after Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven? Do you think that eating and drinking that simple meal meant something different to them at that point as a result of everything that had happened. So it should not 
come as a surprise that the early church held this in such high regard because their devotion to the Lord's Supper was rooted in and based on their relationship with Jesus. Their devotion to the Lord's Supper was based on their relationship with Jesus. In other words, some of the members of the early church were the very same people who experienced these events for themselves firsthand. Remember last week, the letter, we read a little bit of the letter of 1 John. Right at the beginning, it talks about, we testify to you about these things because we've seen them with our own eyes and we've heard them with our own ears. And now we proclaim these things to you. And so even though it's 2,000 years removed from the original event, the original Lord's Supper, Generations and generations of faithful followers of Jesus have continued to pass the importance of all of this on to us. And for us, it's also through our relationship with Jesus that we too remain devoted to celebrating it today. It's vital. It's not optional. It's part of what the church and who the church is. But is... is is it just a celebration? Is that all it is? Is it, is it just a tired old ritual that, eh, well, we just kind of do this because we've always done it? Sometimes it feels that way. Is it just maybe sharing a little meal together because, you know, we get the benefit of that usually means that the sermon's going to be shorter? Not all the time, by the way. Well, lots and lots of ink and even some blood has been spilled in furious debate, trying to figure out all these details about the Lord's Supper. And this continues to rage on today. People passionately argue over what exactly they think is going on in the Lord's Supper. Because you've got certain people from certain faith traditions that are saying, well, the elements themselves literally turn in to the flesh and blood of Jesus. And while we don't agree with that, then we've got Others who say, well, this is all just a nice way to remember Jesus and that's all it is and nothing more. So there's lots of different interpretations out of there, but I want to say this to you. No matter what your interpretation or understanding is, the reality is as soon as we commit ourselves to arguing about it, as soon as we go down the road of being furious and really trying to understand all these details, the further and further away we get from the entire point. Because at its core, the Lord's Supper is, is not a riddle to solve, but it's an invitation into fellowship with God. It's not a riddle, it's an invitation to be with and to commune with God. Yes, of course, there is still mystery around it. And folks, I want to tell you that's okay. That's okay, because as long as we know that the Lord's Supper creates this opportunity for us to join together, not just with God, but also with one another in true fellowship with God, then we start to get closer to knowing why we do it, even when it's true that mystery still remains. We don't have all the answers, and that's okay. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians gives us a little glimpse 
and how we should be thinking about this and doing this together as the church. And I know this is going to be a real shock to you, but the church in Corinth was screwing it up. They had all kinds of divisions going on in the church. And there's a big, long story of, of all these issues Paul's trying to solve. But people just can't get along. And so Paul is writing, especially in chapters 10 and 11 in 1 Corinthians, pleading with them to take communion seriously and to follow the instructions he is laying out for them. And so even though the specific problem that Paul is trying to solve in the Corinthian church is all related to um, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, which we don't have that problem, the way he addresses it gives us some needed insight into more about the Lord's Supper. And so I want to look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just at verses 16 and 17 to start. Is not the cup of thanksgiving or the cup of blessing for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. And so the first aspect of the Lord's Supper is that it's participation. It's participation. The Greek word that Paul uses here that's translated as participation is the same word that we talked about last week, koinonia, which, if you'll remember, means to share in or to be in fellowship with God and also with other Christians, koinonia. So when we eat the bread and drink the juice, we are participating in communion with Christ along with all who are in true fellowship with him, all those who believe in him. All believers are gathered at one, I don't even know how you say it, one table that's so big we can't even possibly comprehend it. And so even though we can't intellectually understand how this table could possibly be so big, the key point is that in fellowship, we are invited as followers of Jesus into a reality that's bigger than we can possibly imagine. Jesus invites us into this. He, he does this in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 20, when he delivers this kind of personal invitation to, to come and eat with him. Look at verse 20, uh, Revelation 3, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's an invitation to commune with our Lord. And the second aspect is that it's a commemoration. We already read in Luke's gospel that, that we celebrate the Lord's Supper in order to remember Jesus, yes, and also what he has done for us, yes. And he commands us to continue to do this, not just to the disciples, but that's a command to us too. continue to do this and remember me. And, and Paul gives us a slightly expanded version of exactly the same thing in his description of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, it, it, this is more, it sounds a little bit more familiar to maybe what we've, what we've heard before. Uh, starting in verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so there is a clear indication that this should be understood as more than just eating a small piece of bread and drinking a little container of juice. There's more going on here. After all, there's, there's nothing really significant about the act of eating and drinking. But a main purpose of eating this particular bread and drinking this particular juice is so that we remember the cross of Christ and the work that Jesus completed on that cross. Jesus willingly gave himself over for our benefit. As he says in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Nobody took his life from him. He gave himself over. He did this not just to forgive our sin, but to save us from our sin. But the most essential part of celebrating the Lord's Supper is to believe and to know and to trust and to remember that Jesus did all of this for you and for me. He says, this is my body given for you. And this is my blood shed for you. It's not just that we remember the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's that we remember why he did it. He died for our sins and was raised to restore our fractured and broken relationship with the Father. And he did this for us, for us. Jesus' death on the cross is what ushered in the new covenant that he's talking about. It brought the old covenant to an end and brought the new one into beginning. No more animal sacrifices to pay for sins. No more ceremonial and food laws and all this stuff to, to avoid and keep ourselves from becoming unclean. Jesus took all of it upon himself, all of it, including our sin, and put it to death on the cross once and for all. Not just the sin right at that moment, but sins of the past, present, and even future. And by doing that, he became the final Passover lamb. And he did what no other sacrifice could ever think of accomplishing. He restored our relationship with the Father so that, that all who believe in and all who follow him and all who trust in Jesus, all have a place at God's table. That is what we remember. The Lord's Supper helps us to do this in a way that visibly and tangibly expresses the essence of the gospel itself. It gives us something to hold on to and something to put in our hands and, and, and something to even put into our bodies so that, that the gospel itself becomes graspable in a way that, that means more to us oftentimes than just hearing the words alone. And so an example of this, I think that will be helpful, is that, you know, if I tell my wife that I love her, she most often smiles. 
if I write her a note and tell her that I love her, well, then she'll likely hang it up and read it and refer to it often. But even with all that, if I don't kiss her for a while, then she starts to wonder, do I really love her? Or is that just lip service? Or I, I guess it would be lack thereof. But if I tell her that I love her, and then I seal that promise with a kiss, well, now she actually feels loved. She has something to hold on to in a way that, that means more than just saying it. It's not that the kiss has any power to do anything by itself, but it's the proclamation of love that is then sealed by the kiss that then makes the same exact promise communicated in a different way becomes something that's easier to cling to and to not forget. Because, after all, we are a forgetful people, aren't we? Which is why the last aspect of the Lord's Supper I want to mention today is that it's for proclamation. It's for proclamation. Paul says this in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are not just remembering, but we are also proclaiming the gospel message to one another. Because the you in the you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes is confusing because English is sometimes limiting. Uh, the you there is second person plural, which means you all, all of you are doing the proclaiming. Part of the fellowship of the believers is that we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to one another, and we do so regularly, frequently, often. Paul says often. How often? Often. How's that for specific? Do it often. But the point is that this is not just the job of the pastor to do. This is what all of us in the fellowship are called to do for one another. Together, together, we proclaim the good news to one another as we remember what Christ has done for us. We remember how he has set us free through the shedding of his holy, precious, and innocent blood. And we do that, we remind ourselves of that, but we proclaim that to one another in the truth that we share with each other about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so that's what I would like us to even try right now today in this moment. Now, if this is if you're willing, I know this is, I know that this is a little bit different than probably what we've done before, probably what we're used to. But in light of, of the Lord's Supper and really getting a, a good understanding of, of what the essentials are about it, I'd like you as, you as you get ready to partake of these simple elements to turn to somebody else and just simply remind them of the promises that Jesus has made, the things that he has done, by just simply saying to the other person, remember, the body of Christ was given for you. And remember, the blood of Christ was shed for you. And I realize that maybe you're watching this and there's nobody else with you. And that's totally okay. Because we're together in this moment. And so 
I will say it to you as well. Remember, the body of Christ was given for you. And the blood of Christ was shed for you. And as you eat and drink, remember God's promises. Remember God's promises that you have been given and that they have been sealed by the body and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. For that, we give thanks. Amen.